You ever wonder why some things are in the Bible and some things are not? You know, why we know the names of some people and we don't know the names of other people? There are a lot of things about the Scripture that if you, if you stop and you, you ponder it, you, it may raise questions about why that and not this and why this and not that. That's sort of what was going through my mind as I came to the end of the book of Acts. You would expect, I, at least I, would, I was expecting, when you get to the end of this grand story of the church, as you come to the end of this and it's going to be a crescendo, and, and you get to the end of it and it's, it's big and bold and powerful. N.T. Wright says that, you know, when you get to the end of this, you expect symbols and brass and timpani. And in this glorious celebration as the book comes to an end, But instead, what you get sounds more like the haunting melody that Debbie just played. When you come to the end of this book, instead of this glorious climax of power, it just sort of hangs there. It just just sort of sits there. There are all kinds of questions. What happens to Paul? What happens to Peter? What happens to Apollos? What happens to Aquila and Priscilla and all the other people we hear about in this book? And we don't get anything. It's as if you were were walking along and all of a sudden the whole thing just dropped off the edge. It's just done. I don't think it's a coincidence that that happens. I think there is something in ending the book that way that speaks to us about life and about faith and about the church. Because what we would like is that the book would be closed, wrapped, bow on top, finished. And what we get is open-endedness. I'm coming to see as as I get older that God loves open-endedness. God loves mystery. I was reading something the other day, and someone said that when they were thinking about prayer, and they said most of the time what they want from prayer is that it's like the period at the end of a sentence. It's done. We asked for it. It's finished. But he said, most of the time, my prayers feel like they don't end in a period, but they end in an ellipsis. You know? Dot, dot, dot. And when you get to the end of it, it just sort of, hangs there. It just keeps going. You don't know exactly where it's going to end or what direction it's going to go or who's going to be involved in it. And God seems to love that type of interaction with us. And I suspect it's because when we, when we feel that there's closure, when we feel that we finished it, there is a tendency in our human nature to say, okay, God, I'm good with that one and I'm done. I think I can handle it now. When there's open-endedness, when life feels like an ellipsis, there is a much greater need to say, Lord, I cannot do this without you. And the difference is cutting ourselves off from the source of life and joy and peace and all that we deeply desire versus trusting God and walking with him and finding everything we desire. And the real message of the book of Acts as it ends is not the thriving of the church is done. It's really that the church is now just beginning to unfold its story.
And I think one of the reasons that Luke leaves this open-ended is because the church doesn't stop when Paul dies. The church isn't finished when Peter dies. The church, the church, we know the church thrives when we see it going on from generation to generation to generation to generation, all the way down to you and me and our generation, and hopefully the generations that follow us. In many ways, that's what it looks like when the church is thriving. And to get to that point, we, we embrace the fact that we live in a world that's fallen and broken and gives us a million reasons to be cynical and despairing. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of everything that's going on in the world right now, the things that have and will take place that discourage us and disappoint us, In the midst of all of that, we have decided that we are going to bank our existence on the hope of Jesus. And when the church does that, the church thrives. When the church says, it's not about all these other things that are happening, as if that reflects the reality of what is what is really most important and what is really the center of what's happening, we realize that all those things are true and all that stuff is happening, but somehow we have come to see Jesus in the middle of it. The hope of Christ. The world often looks like a photographic negative if you take a biblical perspective. Everything is turned around. All the ways in which in which people say this is how you get ahead, this is success, this is, this is joy, this is happiness, this is what life is about. All of those things, which seem to work pretty well for a lot of people in the world, when you look at them from a biblical perspective, are the exact opposite. But when your hope is in Christ, there is a new perspective on all the stuff that's going on. It doesn't just eliminate it. It doesn't deny it. It just gives us the ability to see Christ in the middle of it. And to see Christ working and that those things are not the end. When you get to the, when you go back, all the way back to the beginning of the book of Acts. In chapter 1, Jesus is talking with the disciples and all of a sudden he starts going up into the sky. That would have been a thing to witness, right? And they're just standing there, mouths agape, wondering what in the world is happening. And an angel comes to them and says, why are you guys standing here looking up at the sky? The same Jesus who just went up is coming back. And the rest of your lives and the rest of all of those whose lives you touch and lives they touch, live in that hope that Christ who is dead is risen and Christ who has ascended will descend. And that's our hope. And that changes everything. It allows us to see the world with new eyes. Paul gets to the end of this. And he's talking with the, with the Jewish leaders. And, and he says to them, you've rejected the truth. And because of that, your eyes are blind and your ears can't hear. And you're missing everything. But when we engage the spirit, we see it. We hear it. We get it. And what does that look like? I think maybe it looks like faithfulness and it looks like generosity and it looks like compassion and it looks like faith 
And it looks like being a place of refuge. And it looks like unity. And it looks like forgiveness. And celebrating other successes. And communicating in a gentle spirit. Because those are the characteristics of Jesus. Paul says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what is that mind? Servanthood, humility, death. It goes against the grain of everything we think of. We think the way to fight the despair and the hopelessness and the opposition to the church and Christians in the world is to fight back. And we want to, actually, probably what we want to do is escape. Right? I mean, we're saying, Lord, just get me out of here. How long? How, how, just, I want to be released from all of this. I want to be set free from all of this bad stuff. And that's the most natural thing in the world. But Jesus says to his disciples in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. I'm asking you to help them to thrive while they are in the world through my spirit. But we miss that so often. And instead of living in a spirit of hope, we live in a spirit of fear and anxiety. And it's so easy to become cynical and to fight and use all the strategies the rest of the world is using. Because when we, so often the church says to thrive looks just like we measure that the same way McDonald's does and Macy's and State Farm Insurance and whatever else you want to think of. But the gospel tells us there are different ways to measure what it means for the church to thrive. But we get wrapped up in that and we fear. And I think, I suspect that fear is rooted in feelings of insecurity and inferiority. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, when you forget the hope that is ours in the returning Christ, you're left feeling very insecure and very inferior. And when you're inferior and insecure, you fight back and you, you operate out of a spirit of fear instead of a spirit of love and grace and compassion and servanthood. It's been a little over, well, it's been 15 and a half years or so ago that we decided we wanted to get a dog. And it was a series of circumstances with our boys that brought us to that point. And we decided we wanted a house dog. And so we wanted a small dog. And we were at a soccer game one day and saw a woman who had a little dog. And we thought, that's exactly what we want. And we found out where she got it. And, and so as we were exploring that, we went to our, our local vet, veterinarian and said, so we're thinking about getting a small dog. What do you think? And he smiled. I can still see his face. And he said, well, you've got to understand, small dogs have an inferiority complex. And he said, you know, so they're always trying to prove themselves. And they're much more apt to bite you. They're much more apt to bark all the time. They're much more apt to be aggressive. Big dogs know they're tough. Little dogs have to prove they're tough. And, you know, and we've had our dog now for, he looks pretty sedate there, but that's unusual. But no, it isn't. But he, you know, we've had him for 15 and more than 15 years, and the vet was right. Uh, He spends a lot of his day up on the arm of the couch watching dogs go by and barking at them. And trying to tell them, I'm bigger than you, I'm better than you. Of course, you take him out in the yard, then he hides behind your leg when they come up. But, you know, and, and I think sometimes that's how we operate. We bark and fight because we feel insecure, we feel inferior. And it's because we've forgotten our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in the stuff. Our hope is in Jesus. He has conquered 
Christ who is dead is risen. Christ who has ascended to heaven is returning. And when he returns, all the mess of the fallen, broken world, he's going to put right. That's our hope. And that's what drives us. That's what me, that's why we can say that there is life even when we talk about death. And there is, there is joy even when we talk about sorrow. And there's peace even when we're feeling pain. Because of Christ. I think we, I think we, sh- we fall into bad traps of thinking because we aren't taking advantage of the ways in which God is helping us see him. And one of the most significant and profound ways to keep that hope before us is worship. When we come together for worship, it's not just, well, that's what we do on Sunday morning. The point of this, at least one of the points of coming together for worship, is to remind us of the truth. And to keep the truth in front of us. Because we spend so much of our week being bombarded by things that are not the truth. We're bombarded by messages about this is what it means to be successful. This is what it means to be right. And this is how you respond to that. And many of them are not gospel thinking. And so we come together on Sunday to be reminded that our hope is in Christ, that the, that the Christ who is dead is risen and he's returning. We remember who Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ has promised. And so we sing the songs and we read the scriptures and we hear the words and we pray the prayers. And we walk out hopefully energized about the truth. And as we come together in worship, one of the most significant things we do is to give thanks. There's something about giving thanks that cuts through cynicism and hopelessness and despair. And often when we're in that kind of mindset, we can't see a good thing anywhere. But when we give thanks, it has a tendency to melt that stuff. Paul, I think, talks about that in Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice, give thanks. And what fascinates me is that he didn't just say it, he practices it. Because in chapter 1, he says, I want you to know that it's a good thing. I'm giving thanks to God that I'm sitting here in this Roman prison in chains. Because what's happening with me is encouraging the church. And I get the added privilege of spending hours every day with these Roman guards. And I get to tell them about Jesus. And some of them are being changed. Then he gets to chapter 4 and he says, I want you to know, whatever happens to me, I'm content. Contentment is what happens when you give thanks. And sometimes we need each other to to sort of nudge us into thanksgiving because we forget. We get enamored with things. And, And it's why we come to this table. One of, the, one of the ways of describing this table through the centuries has been the word Eucharist. Give thanks. And the prayer, the great thanksgiving. It's, it's, an, it's a historic prayer that I, what I find so fascinating about it is it puts us into, into the historic settings. And, and the prayer says things like, we were slaves in Egypt and you rescued us. We stood on the banks of the Red Sea with our enemies at our backs and you parted the waters. We waited outside the land of Canaan wondering how in the world we are ever going to defeat these giants 
and, and these walls. And you gave it to us. And we stood at the cross. And you forgave us. That's the kind of stuff we hear, we're reminded of when we come to worship. And I think we also thrive by what we do on our own. We need to keep ourselves in the scriptures because the scriptures keep us focused. And we need to have time and space in our lives for reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures and praying. That's why we keep doing these prayer vigils. Because it gives us an opportunity to set aside some specific time and often some extended time to pray, to be in God's presence, to listen, to talk, to engage with God, and to be reminded again of the truth of who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. And we need that regularly. Because everything else in life is squeezing us. Even the good things are squeezing us. And when life squeezes us, we tend to forget the truth. We get wrapped up in all of the things I do, I suspect you do. It's in those moments that we need to be reminded from the scriptures and in prayer that God is bigger than all this stuff. That Jesus has won. And that someday... He is going to set everything right. And that's our hope. E. Stanley Jones, great missionary statesman of the 20th century, said that it's often when we think about all everything going on in the world, war, despair, terrorism, moral decay, opposition to the church, all these things. The tendency is for us to throw up our hands and say, oh my goodness, look what the world's coming to. I suspect you've done it. I've done it. He said, but what if in that moment, as we contemplate all of the stuff, what if in that moment, instead of saying, look what the world is coming to, instead we said, look what has come to the world. And look what is coming to the world. And to focus our attention on Jesus. Because when we focus our attention on Jesus, then we have resources and a desire and a passion to do something about all the stuff in the world. To be a presence of hope and joy and healing and refuge and compassion and forgiveness when our focus is on Him, when our hope is in Him. I'm convinced that's what it looks like for the church to thrive. And it's my prayer for you and for me and for us. Holy Father, thank you For your abundant grace. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. Open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, that we might see and hear 
and understand. Father, we pray that you'd pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. As we eat and drink, may this be food for our souls. and Fill us anew with the hope that is ours in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.